Welcome to That Said. I'm Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will speak with John Dean about his new book, Authoritarian Nightmare, Trump and His Followers. John served as counsel to the President of the United States from 1970 to 1973, and it is his testimony that is credited with causing the resignation of Richard Nixon. John is the author of numerous best-selling books and a frequent commentator on CNN. John, welcome to That Said. Good evening. So let's start with the fundamental question of why did you write this book? Before you go there, I'd just like to thank Richard and you, Michael, and Compro for putting this together. Uh, we have a, uh, a long history in, of green room conversations uh, that have emerged. Uh, actually, there were some on-air conversations when uh, we've both been on CNN together. I find myself, as you know, most often agreeing with you when there's a panel, and it's always a pleasure when you are on one of the panels. So I thank you all for assembling this, and now I'll try to answer your first question, is why did I do this book? Uh, it's an appropriate question. I did the book. It's not my first trip into authoritarianism. I'd done a book in 2005, 2006 called Conservatives Without Conscience. It was a successful New York Times bestseller, uh, and it looked at what was then the takeover of the conservative movement, at least at the top, by authoritarian personalities. And in the course of doing that book, I met a professor of psychology at the University of Manitoba, Bob Altemeyer, uh, who I would collaborate on this book with. Uh, he has spent his entire career studying authoritarian personalities and authoritarianism in general. When Trump came along, both of us were writing columns. I was writing them for Justia, uh, and actually that was, I just recently looked, that was one of my last columns with Justia uh, because I went to work full-time with CNN uh, shortly after Trump arrived. But during the campaign, I was writing about Trump's authoritarianism, and not so much Trump's, which was fairly conspicuous, but who were the people who were attracted to this guy? Why would he appeal to anybody? And uh, Altmaier and I knew well what was going on, that he had stumbled in to the coiled uh, personality in our electorate that are authoritarian personalities. And they, they found him and he found them, and that's resulted in putting him in the White House. Without that core group, uh, he would have been a fool on a soapbox. Uh, with them, he's become a very powerful figure. They're the people who support him. Now, I, I was surprised that so few journalists and political commentators noticed what was going on, and particularly the fact there was about four or five decades of solid science about these personalities in the political world. And Altmaier had been studying them, and he too, he, he's in Canada, but he's an American. He was born in St. Louis. He just uh, spent his career where they gave him tremendous freedom to do his research into authoritarianism at the University of Manitoba. 
but he, he didn't understand either why everyone was missing this. And the little bit that was covered was on a very narrow area of research into this field. Uh, more of it was discussions of the political science side of it, which is even vaguer uh, as to when a democracy slips into an authoritarian form of government. I, in, in the course of the conversations, to get to answer your question with that background, uh, the book was prompted because nobody else was addressing who the hell these people are that are attracted to Trump. And to get there to do the book, we structured it in a way, had no idea Mary Trump was going to write a book on this uh, or, or on her her uncle and do it as something of a psychological profile. But we did a, a psychological profile of him looking for the roots of his authoritarianism, which led to the same place that Mary reported, which was Fred Trump, uh, uh, Donald's father, pure authoritarian figure. We, The science doesn't know if authoritarianism as a personality comes from uh, nature or nurture. Uh, Altmaier, after decades of researching this and interviewing people, thinks it is probably largely parenting. So the nurture is the larger influence with a lot of, uh, of the authoritarian personalities, but they must have a predisposition to that kind of behavior and uh, that kind of nurturing, if you will. So anyway, th th there was nobody writing about it. Uh, I went to Altmaier and I said, listen, if my publisher doesn't want me doing a book other than the next book I'm supposed to do, uh, which is called Watergate at 50. We're, believe it or not, we're approaching that. And we're talking about a two-volume work to kind of clean up a lot of history and, and put it all together. There's a lot, of his, a lot of material has been released that nobody knows about. So they wanted me to gather all that up and, and to get to work on that. Uh, and I said, no, 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 this is more important. Uh, so I did it without my publisher's blessing, uh, just assuming if we did a good manuscript, uh, I wouldn't have any trouble finding a publisher to do it. And that's what happened. I, uh, the first house I went to, uh, outside was that I could find a, to uh, crash the book through was Melville, uh, and they did, have done a remarkable job. I'm told there are a lot of typos in it, uh, which doesn't surprise me because it was a pretty rushed editing job at the, at the uh, and trimming. We did a lot of trimming at the end to pull it, tighten it up a little bit. But uh, those are all have been corrected now with a another copy editing trip. So there's a lot of background way beyond your question. And uh, it's important. We'll go from there. It's important. So what I'd like to do, we've used the word authoritarianism. Um, it's the title of your book, Authoritarian Nightmare. You, you called Trump an authoritarian, but let's, let me define it. So an authoritarian, by my definition, is one who favors strict obedience to authority at the expense of individual personal liberty. And it's really not so much a political system as it is a type of political behavior. So it's a, it's a matter in which people behaves, one is an authoritarian, uh, an autocrat, a dic dictator, etc., as much as it is a, uh, a system. So let's start, John. I know it's not the primary thesis of the book. The book really... Not the thesis at all. In fact, we state, other than a passing paragraph at most, 
on authoritarianism. I think there are like two paragraphs on what it is where we define it as the relationship of a follower to a leader because without without followers, an authoritarian is something of a laughingstock uh, with no place to go. So you have to have the followers, and the followers have also been the focus of most of the study of the 40 years of studying authoritarianism. Uh, 30 of them or 40 of them are, are on the followers. The last 10 years have been on the leader types. Um, so we deliberately stayed out of the political science sort of definition is when do you have an authoritarian regime? Uh, yeah. we, we assume that most everybody, Michael, knows when they, uh, an authoritarian personality, when they see one. They either have one in their family or they run into one at work or these are not difficult personalities to, to find or to recognize. So everyone knows them. So we didn't go deep into that at all. You know, and, I, and, and, and I appreciate that, but I just wanted to sort of define terms of what is an authoritarian, this one who demands strict obedience at the expense of your personal liberty, because authoritarians historically don't rise in democracies very frequently. I know you say Nixon, Trump, uh, would well, actually, if, if I had to say who, who we've had, I go to John Adams, I go to uh, Andrew Jackson, I'd go to Woodrow Wilson, I'd go to Richard Nixon, and now uh, Donald Trump. They all meet a criteria of a dominating uh, authoritarian personality that's used in social science. And that, that definition of, of who these social dominators are has three or, excuse me, four uh, clear criteria that they are dominating type personalities, they are desirous of personal power, they have no regard for equality, in fact, they are uh, hostile towards equality, and they are amoral. I would put uh, John Adams, Andrew Jackson, uh, Woodrow Wilson, Richard Nixon, and Donald Trump hit all those, with Donald Trump being a poster boy for a social dominator. Right. And so when I read the book, uh, I went back in time and reread um, Hannah Arendt's Origins of Totalitarianism, written in, in 1951, because it seemed to me Great there, was, there were some parallels that you sort of bring forward in, in um, current times. She writes that you know, sadly, in 51, after the Second World War, says throughout history, totalitarian, totalitarianism has reared its ugly head repeatedly, and there's no reason to believe it won't happen again. When people feel isolated, when they feel left out or discarded by their communities, they become prime targets to totalitarians. You're willing at that point to succumb to the authority of the leader to fulfill something that, that you are in need of. And I think that's exactly the heart of what is the beginning of your book, which is really chapter five, which is who are these people who are willing to succumb to a leader um, at their own sort of liberty and personal freedom expense. So why don't we why don't we start unless you disagree with Hannah Arendt and you think well I I, I I do a little bit. She comes at it as from the view 
the point of view of a political philosopher, if you will. Uh, observation, uh, thought, analysis, and, and a sort of a philosophical approach of, of who these people are. We don't reject that, but we, our, our approach is science. In other words, teasing out from interviews with people, their personality traits, and then testing other people to see if they have those traits. Uh, when people are, this isn't something that is uh, necessarily done involuntarily ever. It's done voluntarily through social science. And so all the material and the science we're relying on has been, uh, is not observation of a philosopher, is rather the observation of social scientists who've done testing after testing after testing uh, to look for these personalities, identify them, and once you do, you can take that information, and while, while typologies have their problems, when somebody walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, and has feathers, it's probably a duck. Uh, and so we can assume a lot of the people who fall into these criteria indeed uh, would, would meet the test if they were ever given it. Uh, somebody like Donald Trump is never going to take a social dominator's test or any of the other personality tests that we employed and rely on. Uh, but you can certainly draw the conclusion that uh, when they make statements that are identical in striking instances with Trump uh, to that of a, a con, there's a con man test, uh, and he just, uh, he just rings the bell on it. He hits all the buttons. So you can assume that in those instances, I think safely, uh, that this is the kind of personality you're dealing with, even if you haven't tested them. Right. So we, we, we understand what authoritarianism is and what an authoritarian is. Chapter five of your book begins with what is the psychological composition of those who follow? Arendt, Arendt says it's drawn out of some type of loneliness or lack of sense of community and, and looking for someone to sort of be their father figure. Your analysis breaks it down into two and then a, a, a unique third category. One is social dominators, one is authoritarian followers, and the other is the double high. So why don't you take us through, why don't we start with social dominators? Who, who are they and how do they fit into um, the following of an authoritarian figure? All right. These were the these were, the, excuse my, for scratching my eye, we're, we're having very hot weather and allergy season in California, uh, 101 today here in Beverly Hills. <laughs> anyway, uh, the social dominator, these are the leader types. Uh, the, the social science studies of these people, when I was working in 2005 on conservatives without conscience, this information was just coming out in the academic journals. Uh, they had a, a researcher uh, and social scientist who had been looking at authoritarianism for a, a long time at UCLA, Pelabrino uh, Sardanus. Uh, he and uh, his assistant had said, you know, we've been looking at followers and we need to turn around and examine the leaders and find out what the key traits of the leaders are, and they indeed did that and started publishing a number of journals and started doing testing 
of, of what they dubbed the social dominator type. Typically, they are men, almost, we're talking 98% probably are, are men. As I said earlier, they have dominating, pers- the, the key criteria is they have dominating personalities, they oppose equality, they're desirous of personal power, and they're amoral. This is, this is developed not by observation of some social scientist in a white jacket in a lab. This is the result of testing of these people, and that these are very easy things to score and, and find out. Uh, we also, they also gave these people lots of other tests uh, to see where they fit, and an interesting pattern emerged for the social dominators that typically they also are intimidating personalities and bullies. They're faintly hedonistic. They're often very vengeful people. They're pitiless. They're exploitive. They're manipulative. They're dishonest. They'll cheat to win. They're highly prejudiced. They're racist, sexist, homophobic. They're mean-spirited. They're militant, and they're nationalistic. Now, that list is, is, is the list I... Uh, drew down in Conservatives Without Conscience uh, well before Donald Trump ever surfaced. And when he did, uh, my book started moving again, my earlier book on this subject, because people had, had heard of that study and they began looking at it and said, wow, this describes this guy to a T. Uh, and it does. Uh, but this body of science, as I say, uh, really has been developed Probably around 2005 is when it uh, first surfaced, and it's been refined and, and further developed since then. So that that is the first category of of, of personalities that who are likely to fall into uh, uh, authoritarianism. I define. You should understand, Michael, how I define authoritarianism, which is a little different than Hannah Arendt and other people. I define it as the relationship of, of a leader to his followers and the sort of the personality, the interplay, uh, and that's the social dominator being the leader and who are the people who follow that and why do they follow him and what kind of problems does it create when they uh, submit. And that's the, that's the other category uh, that we're looking at are the people who are known as right-wing authoritarians is the label that social scientists put on them. Uh, Altmaier was involved in that, and he said, you know, had I to do it again, I would not use right-wing authoritarian because everybody immediately thought it was a test for conservatism, as it, and particularly given the fact that conservatives score so highly on it. He said, what I actually had in mind uh, was a little bit wonky and too social sciencey to really uh, uh, do the job. I was thinking of the old English use of the word uh, right wing and and right being uh, the word writ uh, w r i t uh, and meaning correct to authority, which these people are. So let me describe the followers. This is where this is where the one second, because before I want to get before we get to authoritarian followers, I want to flesh out a little bit about these social dominators. So you've described a, a group of people who behave in a certain way, which is 
authoritarian in and of themselves. Yet these people are followers of. So how how does that play out? How do people who are accustomed to being authoritarian? How can dominators be su- submissive to uh, other uh, leaders? Well, yep. not everybody can be a leader. Uh, you, what happens is uh, these people cannot all be the chief. And so to because of their personality, they are willing to submit and follow others uh, because they can indeed dominate in their own world. Let me give a, a classic example that's recently emerged. Mark Meadows is a classic social dominator. He came into Congress as the major dono and moving force in the Tea Party, moved from there to the Freedom Caucus. He was he was the the chest pounding top gorilla in that organization on the hill. Uh he's the alpha in in that movement. Uh his word was 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 it and uh he had all these followers who went along with him, many of them who are social dominators also. Uh, but that's another story. That's that's the way the system works. But anyway, here's this social dominator who clearly gave up being number one to go work in a in a middle level White House position, uh, the chief of staff. That isn't the top dog in the White House. That's a, an administrative guy who gets the last ear of the president, who moves all the papers at the right time, uh, makes sure the advanced people are doing their thing on the political side. I mean, it's a, it's an odd job, chief of staff. You really are uh, not in charge of policy. You're in charge of people and making sure the place works. So he gave up being the top dog to indeed submit to Trump and obviously he has to kiss up to Trump uh, and do what Trump says or he's not going to last 24 hours. So that's what happens with these social dominators. What the, the this leads really into the third category are the double highs. It's well, why I, I wanted to describe the I wanted to describe the followers first, Michael, yeah, so you yeah. understand the picture before yeah. you get because there's a lot of crossover. Because yeah. what what happens is social dominators can score high on the key test, uh, the right wing authoritarianism test uh, that has been relied on in this body of social scientists by social science for about 40 years. It's been refined. Uh, so who are these people? There, there are certain key uh, criteria to, to, to fall into this category. First of all, with, with right-wing authoritarian followers, you're talking both men and women here. And these are people who are submissive to authority. And then they become aggressive on behalf of that authority. And they're typically very conventional. Uh, the evangelicals and born-agains are very, very typical of right-wing authoritarians. Uh, we found, when you look at the testing generally of these people, uh, they're all, most all, highly religious. They have moderate to little education. They trust untrustworthy authorities. They, too, are prejudiced, uh, particularly against homosexuals, women, and followers of religions other than their own. They're mean-spirited. They're narrow-minded. They're intolerant. They're bullies. They're zealous. They're dogmatic. They're hypocritical. 
they're inconsistent and contradictory. One of the in fact we dwell in in in, in uh, chapter five and six on how uh, little critical thinking skills these people have and how they manage to compartmentalize uh, the the belief systems that they have developed that often have been given to them, handed down from parents or or pastors or whatever, and they lock it into a silo and they draw it out when they need it, but they may have one right beside it that in essence is 100% or 180 degrees away from the position they, they may hold. So anyway, they are, they're, they're often inconsistent and contradictory. They, they're prone to panic. They're highly uh, self-righteous people. They're moralistic. They're strict disciplinarians. Uh, they're severely punitive. Uh, they demand loyalty and they return it. They have very little self-awareness. This is a broad picture with additional testing of the right-wing follower. Now, the third group are the people who test high for both of these. And this is highly inconsistent because how can you be a dominator and be submissive to authority? That's the Mark Meadows type example. And the reason these people will test high or show the traits of, of both is because when testing, and this, they've, they've been asked this question, all these are developed not by observation, but by testing, uh, which, is, which is a big difference. So but the reason they can be, in, be followers when they are dominators is they believe that uh, when they're taking that test, or responding to questions about this sort of thing, that they are in charge. And this is how they want people to respond to them. They want them to be submissive. They want them to be, uh, be uh, aggressive on behalf and follow out in a conventional way what they're telling them is the right way to do things. So these are the, the we're, we're, we're fairly wonky here, but this is, this science has just borne out uh, and what we did because much of this science had been developed on campuses, testing students in universities, uh, testing their parents, uh, testing people in uh, university towns, both in Canada and the United States. Some state legislators and other people had been included in a lot of this testing, but we weren't really sure when we started. We recognized all this in Trump's followers and, and in Trump himself, but we needed to test it you know, to see if it was really applicable. It was sort of a a eureka moment for Altmaier because he's got he's invested his entire career in this but never had the wherewithal to do it but we we did uh in doing this project uh i was able to uh to convince uh the Monmouth University Polling Institute where i have i i know Patrick Murray uh and found he was very interested in this subject and he was actually working on a project not unrelated, and I asked him if he would consider doing a national poll where they literally administer personality tests, where once they find go from the the the, the Trump haters to the Trump lovers, and you and have a body of of uh, registered voters, and, and we have the record of you know they'll reveal who they're voting for and and what have you, but then you take it the next step and dig into their personality. So Mammoth agreed to do that, and we first did uh, a test of almost 900 people in New Jersey uh, and were stunned with the results, but that's where they developed how best to do this and developed a platform 
online that takes about 35 minutes to take the the personality test along with the polling questions. Uh, and once it worked in New Jersey and it was refined there, we went nationwide with a we had a pool of about 230,000 people from which we selected from one end of the spectrum to the other, uh, 990 voters. It skewed a little bit towards more towards uh, Trump supporters because we wanted to understand their base, but not much. Uh, so it was not an unrepresentative sample. And that confirmed uh, all this science. It revealed it's for the first time the Republican Party has become the authoritarian party. It is a combination of social dominators, uh, right-wing authoritarian followers, and strikingly a high number, much more than Altmaier thought existed, uh, double highs. And these are pretty ugly personalities, these double highs. They can be pretty brutal people. They are not uh, democracy-friendly, we might say. Uh, but there they are. They all went to roost in the Republican Party. We also found that the coalition that Trump has put together, which is basically uh, the key pillars are uh, white uh, men without a four-year college education and uh, the evangelicals and, and, and uh, born-again Christians. There's a fine line, but there is a distinction. You can gener Generically, you can call them the religious right, but that's the two groups within and that's the large element in Trump's base, are the religious right. And uh, these people are typically right-wing authoritarian followers. Uh, but uh, those people uh, make up the base, and the, the distinguishing glue that holds them all together is prejudice. Trump has assembled probably the most prejudiced coalition of voters any politician has ever assembled. And that's what that's the, the basis of the way these people operate, and that is what drives Trump's base, uh, is prejudice. So yeah. there's a long explanation for you. And, and why I wanted to flesh this out was because you hear people talk on, on television and around the dining room table where they characterize uh, uh, Trump's followers, Biden's followers, and those are you know, sort of visceral responses to anyone who believes in Trump must be a X or Y. But those are not born of, of science. What I found so interesting about the book was that it was were, there was psychological testing of people, and from that testing you derive these characteristics of the Trump voter. So this is not John... Dean speaking from his political uh, perspective, it might align with your political perspective, but really is John Dean relating the science of the psychological testing that went into a core group of people who then are de determined to have been the base of, of, of uh, the authoritarian followers of uh, President Trump. Is, did I say that correctly? You did. And what it really is, is uh, the reason I did it with uh, Bob Aldemeyer is he has a lifetime in this subject. Uh, we One of the things I noticed and discovered is I there are other scientists that have, you know, it's a small 
body of, of, of social scientists who study this. They're sociologists, uh, psychologists, and political scientists are the three key groups that look at this and are familiar with this body of science. And as I say, it baffled both of us why they weren't talking about all this information that explained Trump's base. Um, and that's why we proceeded to do so. But when you, uh, when, when I began sending Bob articles by other, the, the few others who were writing journal articles on this subject and doing testing of Trump's base and looking at it, uh, he, he just kind of filed them away. And I, uh, I realized when you're working with one of the lead scientists in the subject, he really likes to keep it his science because he knows his, his work so well, and he knows the care he's taken in doing that work. And it proved out when we later just turned, you know, let Mammoth go and test it, uh, use his testing in a, in a larger platform where we tested for social dominators, right-wing authoritarians. Uh, we did a religious fundamentalism test and a prejudice test. Uh, the results were startling, as I say, confirmation of his lifetime of work, as well as some other scientists who work in this area. So uh, there's a question on the, on, the, on the chat room board which says, are people honest on personality tests? Isn't there a similar psychographics that Cambridge Analytica used, finding sort of persuadables in, in their testing? How did, how did you, uh, you know, on people's answers. You're, you're breaking up, uh, but I got the gist of the question. Uh, we did not look at the uh, Cambridge Analytica work. I'm aware of it. Uh, there is some overlapping, but yes and no. And uh, we do not believe that Trump and his team were aware of this body of science. We saw no evidence. They certainly are now after he's been in office as long as he's been, and we believe he's out trying to sign up people when he finds these ter personality traits. So how do you know somebody is being honest on a test, uh, on a personality test? Well, it's not so clear when you got the questionnaire that it was a personality test. Uh, it, was a, it, was, it was broadly and professionally cast in a way that <clears> – <throat> Uh, the people were just providing, willing to provide, it was all anonymous, uh, so these people were providing information about their political positions and then about their personality. And it was, it's in the appendix, and uh, a person has to be thoughtful. This, these aren't yes, no, true, false. Uh, there are ranges of opinions between uh, a plus four to a minus four to a zero if you have no reaction at all to this statement that is given. So it, it, is, it is a range and takes a little thought and a little feeling. And to be dishonest on it uh, makes little sense. You don't know where it's going or how an answer will uh, come out when you first see this test. Uh, you would if you opened the book after reading and took the test and wanted to self-test yourself. Uh, you could probably skew it. But the first time out, uh, and, and this also can be tested for correlations of answers. Uh, it's been administered for many, many times, so there are internal checks within the testing uh, to verify it. Yeah. So there's another question, which I, which is an interesting one, which 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 came to to my mind too, which is I think you've identified 
through this testing, the, the, the foundational group behind um, the support for President Trump, the essentially solid 41 uh, percent. But within that within that group, there also is, and I see them, you know, in my in my in my day to day life, I see them in the in the green room um, at, at CNN and, and elsewhere. And these are college educated uh, indiv- individuals who don't necessarily fit into the undereducated white authoritarian um, that you that male that you, you that you described they're, they're, they they seem to have different priorities maybe they're financial maybe maybe they're otherwise but I was wondering did you take account of that subgroup within the the larger 41 who who are those people we are looking at the yes and no uh, first of all I, I know people who don't match up with any of this that are Trump's supporters and I talk to them about their support why did they support, why did they vote for Trump? Well, one woman said, I, anybody but Hillary for me. Uh, and there was a lot of that, and a lot of her friends felt that way. Uh, there are others who wanted his tax uh, bill that they knew he would get through. Uh, some of them uh, like his, his sensitivity to the market and business. Uh, so it, it, it varies, and, and a lot of these people would not fit in any of these testing categories, but yet when you when you take and look at the results of the Mammoth poll, where people they do fit in these categories, uh, this is this is a good portrait of not necessarily a particular person, but a collective group of people uh, as to why they follow Trump and how you can deal with them or can't deal with them, and that's one of the things one of the reasons we did this and one of the things I kept. Uh, uh, talking to my collaborator was about was I thought we had to be somehow prescriptive and tell people that there must, I said, Bob, there must be something that these people can be told to make them see the light, Uh, you know, uh, that that this is dangerous to democracy and and what have you. He said, I said, that's what's so troubling about these people is they can't see the light. Uh, they can rationalize around it. They can deny it uh, and do it with comfort and will sleep very well. Uh, there are a few on the fringe who will be upset to learn that they are so prejudiced and with they are amongst prejudiced people. They may try to, to adjust their thinking about some of their prejudicial uh, attitudes. But he said, by and large, uh, these people are about as solid a base as you could have. So it's a waste of time to try to persuade them that their thinking is somehow wrong and their support for Trump is foolish. It's a total waste of time. Uh, so that's the sort of the bottom line in the book. And we say that you, there's only one answer. They've, they're not big enough as a group to put Trump into the White House or to keep him in the White House. He, they need others. They need independent voters uh, who lean their way. Now, I'm convinced that the a lot of the money that hasn't been stolen out of the Trump uh, $800 million they've raised uh, has been used in a very below-the-surface, behind-the-scenes effort to register 
more people who are sympathetic to Trump, uh, both uh, religious fundamentalists and, and born again, as well as uh, white men without a four-year college education. There were a lot that did not vote. And so I'm sure this has been a lot of their, they know who their, they know who their base is, and they're out looking for more of it and to, to build on that base. But as I say, we do not believe it's big enough to, to prevail. But yet, the, so the answer is to, to get a tsunami election and just to convince these people that they've got to get back under a rock because this isn't the way democracy can operate or survive. Uh, and just to overwhelm them at the, at the, at the, uh, at the election and vote Trump out. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I keep going back to Arendt, and, and, and she described people who are followers of totalitarians as being lonely people um, and therefore susceptible. In your um, characterization of these people, I, I got the overwhelming sense that most of these people were very fearful people, that the, that the world to them was um, uh, fearful, that it created fear in them, and that they saw the world as a in a, in friend and foe sort of categories, and and because according to your right wing authoritarian scale, they 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 are able to believe in contradictory and conflicting things with you know sort of compartmentalized thinking. They they they, they are perfect candidates to follow someone who. Even though these, some of these people may be highly educated people, and and recognize that that Trump is not nearly as educated at least as he tells us he is, they're still nonetheless willing to to follow because of That's some underlying fear or friend and foe sort of analysis of the world. That's true. That's true. Fear is a is a huge factor in for both social dominators and for right-wing followers, uh, the, the social dominators feeling that, that to control the world, they need to take charge of it uh, and be in a position where they can deal with it. Uh, the followers wanting to be uh, given comfort that daddy is taking care of them and uh, that he will handle everything for them. Uh, Chris Matthews, when he used to be on MSNBC, always liked to talk about the uh, the Republicans versus the Democrats, with the uh, Republicans being the daddy party and the, the Democrats being the mommy party. And that's just not a bad an analogy either. Uh, there is some truth in that uh, analysis by Chris. And do you, do you find in the, yeah, well, that, that's, I mean, another way of, of, of saying is it is empathy and, and, and lack of, of empathy. Yeah. Yes. Or, 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 as someone put on the on the chat room, there there seems to be among a common characteristic among authoritarians some underlying insecurity or paranoia or or something that that gives rise to the behavior that 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 authoritarians seem to uh, or, characterize or narcissism, as we have seen in our current lead authoritarian personality. Right, right, and, th and those things sort of um, all blend together. We've got we've got only um, 15ish minutes left, John, and, and um, I can talk because I'm wonky like you, and this is why we always got along so well on air and in the green room. But I, I can't take the 
opportunity to have you on here and not ask you about current politics. And maybe we can start with. Well, that's what the book is all about, really. It's just the underlying uh, grid to understand it with. That's right. But but what I'd like to what I'd like to 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 do a little bit is you work for Richard Nixon. You called Richard Nixon one of the four uh, authoritarian um, presidents that 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 in in our in our in our uh, constitutional history. Talk a little bit about your analysis of the Nixon um, president, Nixon as a president, the psychology of Richard Nixon, and that which you observe in, in, in the current president. How, how, what, what's, where's the compare and contrast? They're both authoritarians. We take that give you the sharpest compare and contrast is we wouldn't understand that Nixon is the authoritarian he was but for the secret tapes he made of his telephone conversations and his in-room conversations uh, as president. These are where you really find his authoritarian personality surfacing. He's not a demagogue. Uh, He doesn't, he is not a, uh, he's not an authoritarian in the Rose Garden. He's not an authoritarian giving a press conference. Donald Trump is just the opposite. Uh, He was a demagogue from the get-go, and everyone knew it. Uh, His opponents, uh, I think Lindsey Graham was the first one to call him a demagogue. Then Ted Cruz, even Stephen Hawking has called him a demagogue. The New York Times took the first uh, six weeks of his campaign, got all of his speeches and rallies and what have you, brought in a group of uh, social scientists, political scientists, uh, people who had expertise in, in, in demagoguery and said, analyze this and tell if this man is a demagogue. And he said, 100% he's a demagogue. Uh, with that, the New York Times started calling him a demagogue. And that, it was then in headlines after that. And you'll find it throughout the Times after that initial study they made. Uh, they, they, the Times said he, he distinguished himself from George Wallace uh, and Joe McCarthy by actually having a little bit of charm and a little bit of a smile and a smirk. And when he put on his shows, he was a better showman than than they were, uh, which was an interesting uh, distinction. Anyway, back to Nixon versus Trump. Uh, Nixon was trained as a lawyer and actually understood government. Uh, Trump does not even seem to have a good newspaper knowledge of Washington. When he came to Washington, not only did not know where the light switches were in the cabinet room, nor hiring anybody who did, uh, he didn't know what a filibuster was. He'd never heard of it. Uh, he, he didn't, he had, to this day, uh, I think Joe Biden could have some really interesting conversations that baffled him by talking some real deep in the weeds government talk about cloture votes and things of that nature that he wouldn't have a clue what Joe was talking about because uh, he doesn't he just doesn't know he never served in the military uh, he never served in any sort of public service uh, he doesn't understand public service even Richard Nixon on the other hand did uh, he came into elective office he was in the House the Senate he was vice president and then president he knew he he was an attorney he argued. Uh, two cases in front of the Supreme Court, uh, and uh, I, I think that 
what's going to happen is Trump is going to revive the examination of Richard Nixon as maybe not as bad a president as people thought. Uh, Trump is so horrifically damaging to democracy that he's making uh, Trump's or, or, or Nixon's abuses of power look pretty minimal because Nixon was abusing power in the really in, a, in the long run, not for anything of a personal and aggrandizement, but rather he was seeking things like peace. Uh, he thought he was the man, the best man to be president who could get a generation of peace. Uh, evil and maniacal, yes. Evil, not so evil. Uh, so interesting. It's going to. I think there are going to be a lot of second looks at Nixon because of Trump, uh, and and that's healthy and that's the way it should be. Uh, I'm certainly not a, a Nixon apologist in any way, shape, or form, uh, but I was never frightened for the government during any time I was with Richard Nixon. Uh, I never thought he would do the wrong thing. Uh, I thought if he was found guilty, he would certainly leave. In fact, he would leave before he was found guilty because he didn't want the embarrassment of the process of impeachment, nor did he want to put the country through it. Uh, he, he's a man who could experience shame and did. And I think that we have a president now who doesn't understand shame. He doesn't have that emotion. Uh, nothing embarrasses him. He will. We saw that last night in the debates. He'll do anything. Uh, there are no boundaries for this man. There is no propriety for him. Well, this is very different than Richard Nixon, who, first of all, for example, uh, respected the institution that he was a part of and really didn't want to hurt the institution. It was it, he knew it was bigger than he was. So there are many we could go on at some length on this and uh, maybe someday I'll do an essay on Nixon versus Trump because they're very, very different people. Uh, yeah. And they're both authoritarians. Yeah, and I think, John, the, the last point you made is where I come out on this, which is that Richard Nixon um, was an institutionalist. He understood where he fit in and what the role of government was. And when he was required to leave, he left. We have a current president who seems to still dispute the possibility that if he loses the election and he feels that somehow he lost the election in, in a way that was unfair to him, meaning absentee ballots, I suppose, um, or mail-in ballots, that he's not necessarily prepared to accept the constitutional imperative that he leave office. I don't think Nixon, that would have ever been part of his contemplation. Never, never. never. Uh, so he, that, I'm sure. Yeah, so here's another question. That, that that interests me as well. Um, you know, Bernstein and, and I told me, I, I know that you don't you tell me that this this isn't true, but Bernstein tells the story that um, when Nixon was trying to figure out um, where whether the gig was up, um, Goldwater comes to the White House and Nixon says to him. You know, sort of, what's the count? How many people do we have? Meaning, if we go impeachment, do we do we win? I know you you don't exactly accept this, but but it's a great well, story. I, I talked to Goldwater about it. That's why. 
No, no, I understand. But let's let's pretend the story is 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 true because it's it's a it's good a, apocryphal it, story. Good story. It it teaches a, a lesson in a sense. So Goldwater, uh, according to Bernstein, comes to the White House. Nixon says to him, you know, what's the count? You know, how many votes do I have? And Goldwater is, according to Bernstein, reputed to have said to, to Nixon, Mr. President, you do not have my vote. And that and that and and Nixon understood at that point that he could not survive an, an impeachment contest. And then, to your point, he wasn't about to either suffer the humiliation of being um, impeached and removed, or put the country necessarily through it. The question that that someone asked on the, the on the chat room, and which comes to mind all the time, is back in that day, you 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 did have it was slow in coming, but you did have Republicans who said essentially enough's enough. Here, it, we have no enough 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 Republicans. How do you do you see it that way? And and, and if so, how do you account for it. Okay, let me address the spinelessness of the Republicans, uh, which is difficult to fathom. I mean, an overwhelming case of guilt uh, was put in front of the U.S. Senate in January that this man had abused his office. He had solicited a foreign head of state to help him create a bogus claim against his potential uh, adversary, Joe Biden, uh, the president of Ukraine, and he was withholding U.S. foreign aid uh, because of his desire to leverage this guy into getting him to do a personal political favor. I mean, it was out, it's, it's outrageous on the abuse of power uh, scale uh, that he could use the office this way. But yet only one Republican voted against him. And the evidence is just overwhelming. Uh, you know, not only the transcript of the conversation, but all of the surrounding testimony, even notwithstanding the efforts to block it. Uh, the Senate didn't want it. Uh, they didn't want to hear anymore because the public might agree that indeed how bad this was. So what's happened to the Republican Party? The Republican Party is a group of enablers. These are, as, as we say in the book, and uh, Bob and I talked about this at great length, Trump was judged by a body of his peers in the, in the Senate. These are authoritarian personalities. Uh, they understand where he's coming from, and power is more important to them than any sort of morale or morality. Uh, they are amoral. Uh, if it, they're going through with a tremendous sham right now after giving their word that uh, they shouldn't appoint a, uh, a Supreme Court nominee in the last year of a president's term, uh, they're now doing it 40 days before uh, a president leaves office. Their word is useless. They, it's all about, uh, for authoritarians, power and how they can exercise it. So this is very different. But let me also just correct the historical record on the trip of Goldwater, U. Scott, and John Rhodes to the White House uh, to tell Trump, or excuse me, to tell Nixon it was over. Uh, and as I say, I've talked to Goldwater about this. Uh, he was a lifetime friend. His, his son and I have been friends since we were roommates in prep school together and talked together 
all the time. Uh, I, he introduced me to my wife. Uh, he dated her, didn't work out. He said, but I met this pretty girl that he might be interested in, and it did work out for me. Uh, but anyway, um, the senator told me uh, that when it was his idea, and he went to you, Scott, the minority leader of the Senate, the Republican minority leader, and then uh, the minority leader of the House, John Rhodes, and said that we should go down and talk to the president. They called Al Haig, who was chief of staff at that point, and said they wanted to come down. Al said, come down, but I got to talk to you before you see him. They went into Al Haig's office when they got down there. They, Haig pleaded with him, said, for God's sake, don't tell him he's got to leave. Don't tell him that because he's decided he's going to leave. And all he needs to do is be nudged the wrong way, and he'll change his mind. It's taken weeks and days uh, to get this in the right position. He's reached the right decision. Don't upset it. Uh, when Goldwater said they finally went in the Oval Office, he said Nixon was in one of the best moods he'd ever seen. As the senator described it to me, he said it's like a guy who just had his first hole in one and is going to buy everybody at the country club a drink uh, for, for his, his uh, achievement. He was happy. He was light. They, at one point, he does. He he knows the nose count by then. He's got a congressional liaison guy who's been counting noses every day, every hour, uh, for weeks to see where he stood. He knew he was underwater, but he did ask them where where they where they stood, and and so Goldwater gave him a report and said, "Yes, I don't think I can vote for you." Uh, so that's, but that was no kind of ultimatum, but it has served as a wonderful symbolic apocryphal story uh, to how the Republicans marched down and put an end to this presidency, which is just baloney, in fact, but a nice story. Yeah, and but the, the, to tie up the interview now, in a sense, there, there are two things that, that are apparent to me. One is those types of Republicans don't exist. No one, no one yeah. is going to walk down there um, – and and take the chance of having the the president um, reject them publicly and have it undermine their uh, and his real- power comes from his base. His yeah. power comes from his base within within so within the Republican primary system, his base is is all powerful. It may not be enough to get him reelected, but it's surely strong enough to get. A Republican who counters the president thrown out in a Republican, elected in a Republican in a Republican primary. Yeah. Um, but so the, the last question I have for you as we hit the top of the hour is, why do you think there are no John Deans in 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 the current White House? I mean, you 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 risk a great deal. Um, it seemed to me in coming forward, and if those tapes were never revealed, um, goodness knows what what your life would have been like. Thankfully, you had you know verification of of the truth that you, that you told orally um, before the the, the uh, Congress. But why do you think? Why do you think there's? It seems like the president is surrounded by Ehrlichman and Haldemans and no John Deans. Well, I, you know, without, we could do a whole program on, on that subject alone. 
Um, the the uh, the short answer is, I just couldn't lie, Michael, uh, and th- they had decided that I would make a great scapegoat for the cover-up. John Mitchell would make a great scapegoat for the bungled burglary at the Watergate. Uh, people don't understand that Watergate, uh, the generic title of the scandal, has very little to do with the bungled burglary at the, at the uh, Democratic National Committee, but everything to do with what these guys had done before they got to the re-election committee and while they were working at the White House, stuff I knew nothing about, that they had done other break-ins at the White House. Uh, I was also aware that, that Watergate was the cover-up of a lot of other Nixonian activities from everything from urging the firebombing of the Brookings Institute, which I did learn about and stopped, uh, to uh, a host of everything from enemies lists to tax audits on enemies to other abuses of presidential power that I found very uh, disquieting. And I would break rank. I didn't want to blow up the whole place. Uh, but when they decided to try to lay it off on me, I warned them publicly with a message through the Washington Post, don't make me a scapegoat. Uh, and they insisted on going that route. So we were ac- actually at war by the time I testified, Michael. Uh, I'd internally tried to end the cover-up uh, to get Nixon in front of it so he could survive. I didn't want to blow up that presidency. Uh, I thought I thought Nixon did good things. Uh Things like the Environmental Protection Agency. He did want to end the war in Vietnam. Uh, he didn't want to embarrass the, the country in doing so. So I, you know, I, there were things I agreed with that he was doing, uh, and was very comfortable with that. So it wasn't a political situation. It's that I failed internally to get the, the, the cover up to stop. When they realized what I was doing, I was very open. I was hiring lawyers, doing all kinds of things. Uh, they turned on me and said, well, we'll just make you, uh, we'll just make this all mess, blame it all on you, John. Uh, and thank God I did think I was recorded, Michael, and would testify to that because that, that testimony, which I almost didn't include, uh, it was, a, it was, as I was reading my final draft, I said, you know, all this is, not speculative, it's it's personal knowledge. It was the only hearsay or, or hunch I put in my testimony, and it was based on his behavior in a couple of the conversations where he had acted like he was recording me. It was just it was just patent. Uh, so I included it in my testimony, and as a result of it, and, and Howard Baker grilled me. It's also interesting that the tape I thought I time I thought I was recorded is a reel that disappeared uh, and has never shown up. Uh, and I, I, you know, I think they thought if that reel alone disappeared that they wouldn't have to produce it. I'm still hopeful it's in somebody's attic and before I pass off this mortal coil, it will surface because it's a doozy of a, of a conversation that disappeared. But anyway, uh, lots of factors came together and I just couldn't envision lying for anybody. So when I had to testify, uh, I first tried to do it. Uh, with the U- U.S. attorneys, it was way over their head. And and the Department of Justice, I realized, had been corrupted also. So I knew I had to go to the Senate, and that was a very comfortable forum for me. I had been a committee counsel at the House Judiciary Committee. I knew how the Congress worked. 
I had been in charge of congressional relations when I was at the Department of Justice before going to the White House. So I knew my way around the Hill. I knew most of those people long before I appeared before them. And uh, the rest is history. And I'm just glad I, I did have the hunch that I was recorded because, as I say, that that tidbit tended to be uh, the most eventful thing I would add in my testimony. Yeah, so I remember I was in law school, and, and I remember uh, Butterfield's testimony like it was yesterday. Um, yeah, he, was right. he, he disclosed, they called him in on a Friday the 13th of July. I testified on June, the week of June 25th. And in the and at the end of that week, or I testified in my prepared statement. I thought I was testified. I was recorded. Uh, I was quizzed on it. Uh, they Butterfield was just in a chain of of people. They were uh, double checking on, and it was almost a whimsical question that one of the minority staff asked Butterfield the question. Uh, and he asked it. They were trying to discredit my testimony. So they asked Butterfield. They said, you know, Dean claims he might have been recorded. That's impossible, isn't it, Mr. Butterfield? And Butterfield said, no, I don't think it is. <laughs> and that was that was uh, Friday the 13th. And on the Monday the 16th, they interrupted the hearings to have him come in and testify to that fact. So that indeed did change the game. So my it was interesting that, that it was the Republican side that asked him the question uh, publicly. That they, that once well, they, they, the reason they did that, that was all calculated. Sam, yeah, exactly. Dash, Sam Dash thought it would have much more. They called I was in Florida. I was in, the, I was in the witness protection program, and they'd taken me to Florida uh, to a remote location that a friend of mine had a home, uh, and, and Sam Dash called me on Friday the 13th. Uh, and said, you've got to come back to Washington. Uh, and I said, why? He said, I can't tell you, but the mar I've talked to the marshals, and they'll arrange to get you back up so I can meet with you out at your place in Alexandria. Uh, and, he, and I said, I, said I, I just can't. He said, you've got to come up, John. It's imperative. And the reason Dash wanted to talk to me, he thought that Butterfield might be setting them up, uh, that this was a whole thing was – driven uh, in a way to somehow undercut the hearings. So he he had to raise this with me to get my take on whether Butterfield would really know this, if it was really true, and what would it do to my testimony if it was true. Maybe I had just been in there pulling their leg too, and here I'm their key witness. So this I meet with Butter, I, I meet with Sam Dash on a Sunday, uh, the 15th, of uh, of July, and he reveals this to me. He's got Jim Hamilton, another aide, with him to watch my reaction as he's telling it. And Hamilton later said a, sm a slow smile came over my face as I realized what had happened. And uh, he he quoted my remarks. Well, we're not on television, so I can actually say and this is closed it's closed circuit. He said he said I said that my ass is no longer hanging out there all alone now. <laughs> so. Uh, that, that gave uh, Dash satisfaction that they would go ahead and call Butterfield on Monday, uh, the 16th, and the rest is history. John, thank you very much. This has been terrific. It's always a pleasure to spend time with you. Thank you, Michael. It's always a pleasure being with you. For that said, 
This is Michael Zeldin. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions, please feel free to email me at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. That Said is produced by Tom Pro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Thank you so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.